welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has never bought food at TJ Maxx, but is very curious about it. I'm your host, Amanda. Today, we are going to be joined by Celicia. Close Horse listeners, this is a big day because Celicia is our first guest that has never worked with me. Huge. We were both part of a larger social circle in Portland years ago, and we've just stayed in contact as we've both moved around the country. She reached out to me to discuss doing an episode on off-price stores like Ross and TJ Maxx, and I was so excited because I had been wishing that I knew someone to interview about that. Salisha and I are going to spend the first few minutes of the episode reminiscing about the golden era of outlet shopping, and I've really realized, you know, the outlet malls are veiled in secrecy. There's so much we don't know about them, right? And outlet malls seem to be everywhere these days, basically near any tourist attraction. For some reason, they often seem to pop up near amusement parks and beach towns. Now that I'm mentioning it, you can see them, right? You're like, oh yeah, you're right. Why are they always at the beach? Why are they always near Hershey Park? There's probably one near Disneyland. And while brands from both ends of the price spectrum are so worried about damaging their brand's image that they will burn unsold inventory... They're also getting on board with outlet shopping. As of 2019, there were 116 brands with more than 20 stores, 20 outlet stores, and 301 brands with more than 10 outlet stores. The concept of outlet stores began more than 100 years ago. East Coast apparel and shoe manufacturers opened up factory stores, which is a term we still see thrown out there, right? where they would sell damaged or less than perfect inventory to employees. These stores were literally on the same property as their factory. A few years later, they opened up to the public. This inventory was often referred to as irregular, and it could be sold at rock-bottom price because it was more cost-effective to practically give it away than pay to dispose of it. And it allowed the factory to recoup a little bit of the cost of the materials and labor. Basically everything we've already talked about in previous episodes. All in all, a pretty honest undertaking, right? In 1936, a men's clothing manufacturer called Anderson Little opened the first series of factory stores that were outside of the factory grounds. But they weren't in the main shopping districts of towns. They weren't even in the downtown. They were still sort of on their own, somewhat remote, a a destination for sure. Like you would go out of your way to find these hot deals on Anderson Little menswear. From then until the 70s, more and more manufacturers opened up these factory outlets to sell, you know, that less than ideal inventory. And that was all they sold. In 1974, Vanity Fair, which is a lingerie brand that's still around, opened the first outlet complex of multiple brands in Reading, Pennsylvania. I grew up going there with my grandma a couple times a year, and it would be an entire day trip, and we would even bring a packed lunch. At that time, the complex had a picnic area. My aunts, my mom, my cousins, all of the women of the family went to scoop up Vanity Fair bras, Lee jeans, clothes for the men of the family from Wrangler. It was a no-frills experience. Like I said, there was a picnic area. And just huge warehouse spaces connected by walkways with racks upon racks of irregular and and excess inventory. Very hot deals. And as a side note, I'm so intrigued by the idea of outlet shopping as a family experience. I'm recording this introduction after my conversation with Salisha, 
But you'll notice when she talks about outlet shopping as a kid, it was an extended family experience too. A big old outing. A mini vacation almost. Was everyone else's family taking a day trip to the outlet store? I want to hear from you. I mean, when was the last time you went to the mall with your whole family? (laughs) The first official outlet mall opened in the 1980s. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because it was the golden era of the mall as well. Once again, like their predecessors, these malls weren't located near the center of the city or near the regular malls. They tended to be a bit more remote. In fact, most shoppers were traveling 30 to 80 miles to get these smoking hot deals. One survey showed that the average customer at an outlet mall was driving for 54 minutes to get there. And still at this time, most of these stores were carrying overstock, irregulars, and season end product. Like, you know, still true outlet stores. But outlet malls began to grow exponentially through the 80s and 90s. And soon the product changed. Sure, there was still overstock and irregulars, but there's a lot less to go around. I mean, now there's so many more places to sell it. Well, there's only so much imperfect inventory to sell out there. And so with less of this irregular product to go around, in-season, seemingly first quality, which means perfect condition product, began to take up more and more space. And you know what? Business was booming. Some analysts say that consumers were more aware of and more interested in brand names in the 80s than they had ever been before, which does sound right to me based on what I've read, what I've observed. I mean, this was the era of designer jeans, you know, Esprit, Bugle Boy, Guess it was all it was all coming up then. Customers appreciated the idea of getting a deal on these brands, and they had a high regard for outlets as a more honest, transparent approach to selling things. Because even back then, a lot of consumers had this idea that when you bought a brand name item in a regular store, you were paying for the hype, right? You were paying for marketing. You were paying for that fancy store to pay its rent. And so the outlet seemed like a more straightforward, cutting out the middleman way to get it. And these outlet malls were a good idea because shoppers were spending more than twice the time in an outlet mall than a regular mall, two to four hours on average. And it makes sense if you're going to drive that far to go shopping, right? You wanna you wanna put some time in there. I always try to figure that out when I'm gonna go visit someone. I feel like I should stay there twice the amount of time it took me round trip to drive, but then sometimes you end up in some weird, like I'm trying to hang out at someone's house for eight hours situation. <laughs> and that can get really awkward. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thinking that way, right? <laughs> anyway, back to outlets. The other thing about these outlet malls is customers were spending double the amount of money at the outlet than the regular mall. And that says a lot because remember, this product was like half the cost of the stuff at the regular mall, maybe a quarter. So they were just buying tons of stuff, like really stocking up. And this aligns with my experience as a kid going outlet shopping with my family. I mean, we would be like, fill in the trunk, fill in the back seat. We're getting all the clothes we need for the next six months. Like this is our big trip. There are roughly 300 outlet malls in the United States. Some older ones have closed and converted into strip malls, while newer ones have been appearing in tourist areas. Like I said, they're always by the beach. Why? (laughs) 
Developers have been trying to lean into this idea of making a day of the outlet mall by adding restaurants, movie theaters, and you know attractions and activities for children. And honestly, sometimes even some regular old full-price stores just to round it all out. So there's something for everyone to keep everyone busy and keep you there longer. So with so many outlet malls, there's not enough overstock and damaged product to go around. It's no surprise that this kind of product is only about 15% of the total inventory in these malls, 15%. Using our, what if you got that grade on a test way of measuring a percentage, 15% is pretty low. (laughs) The rest of the inventory there, the other 85%, is made specifically for the outlet store at a lower cost and therefore, you guessed it, lower quality. Spoiler alert, a similar thing is happening at off-price stores. And we'll start to touch on that in this episode, but we'll dig into it much more in the next episode. These brands, when asked about it, they say, hey, We know there are more customers out there who want our product and its aesthetic, but they are sensitive to the pricing. So we are making this less expensive product that is similar, but also different. Almost as if they're doing a favor for the customers, (laughs) right? Isn't that what they're kind of getting out there? So they will, they will make these things cheaper while, you know, maintaining the vibe of the brand. So synthetics are going to be substituted for silks, cottons, and wools. Leather trim may be subbed out for plastic. I mean, trims in general are going to be lower quality. So yes, the product is less expensive than what you'll find at the brand's regular store, but it's also not as nice and long-lasting. So is it really a deal? More than anything else, brands get to attract double the number of customers via this dual-channel approach. They have their regular mall customers, But then they get to add in their outlet mall customers. Because while there is some overlap in these two groups, there's not much overlap. So they can double the amount of customers that they serve and, in effect, double their sales. It's really, really smart from a business perspective, 100%. But as we've discussed in the past, the success of fast fashion has changed the entire industry so much. The brands that we don't think of as fast fashion are behaving as if they are fast fashion by shipping everything via air at the last minute, shifting into synthetics and cheaper trims, you know, because the customer is so price conscious. But that's the regular price business we're talking about. So imagine the cheaper version of that product. And that's like mega fast fashion. But still, 15% of the product in these stores is actual overstock or irregular. So It's worth checking out. I mean, I love a deal as much as you do, maybe even more. It's in my blood. Here are some things to be mindful of while outlet shopping, because it's not a total lost cause, right? First off, be aware. If something seems brand new and in perfect condition, but it's still a smoking hot deal, check out the garment more closely. Is the trim made of plastic? How's the zipper? Are there actual real working pockets? That's that's one that I'm always finding. Check out the care label. Is it synthetic? Because you don't want it, right? It's going to make you smell bad. And it's going to shed microplastics into the water supply. Get it out of here. If you can't tell for sure if this brand is making outlet exclusive product, ask someone who works there. If you're like me and you're way too shy to do that and you would rather die than ask even someone for directions. (laughs) There are some more obvious signs this store carries stuff primarily made for the outlet. For example... 
are things available in multiple colorways and in all sizes, like seriously, like fully stocked? That's definitely a red flag. Are there signs promoting specific product collections? Also a red flag. Remember, the nature of a true outlet is sort of random because they never know what they're going to get. But when it's intentionally made for the outlet store, they can plan a large merchandising strategy with specific signage and trend groupings. Like, it's going to have more of a normal store feel than, say, a thrift store feel, you know? You want a lot of randomness. You want everything to not be available in every size because that indicates that it probably is true excess inventory, you know, overcuts, closeouts, that kind of thing. I would recommend that you look for off-season product, like a swimsuit in October or shorts in December. And I know it's really hard to buy something and put it away for four or five months. I've only done it a few times in my life, but when I have, I've been so delighted when the season rolled around. It's like a gift you're giving yourself in the future. When you see this off-season product in an outlet store, it's a good sign that it's first quality and it's just a good deal because those items tend to be true overstock and closeout product. So that's kind of stuff you really want, right? And lastly, be super wary of the tags. Maybe it says it's worth $59, but selling at $20. I mean, that's a lie. You probably have figured that out by now, right? But if you haven't, that's okay because it's designed to confuse you. This product was always intended to sell for $20. So it probably cost the company $5 to make, like maybe even less. Okay, enough about outlets. But if you do have a good outlet story to share, fond memories or other questions, drop me a message. Come on, guys. I want stories of the whole family's at the outlets. (laughs) All right, let's get into our interview with Salisha. As I mentioned earlier, this is going to be a two-parter. We just enjoyed talking so much. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Celicia. Celicia actually reached out to me and wanted to do an episode about off-price. And if you don't know what off-price is, don't worry. You're going to learn all about it. I thought I had a pretty intense understanding of what off-price was and how that industry worked, but it turned out I was almost completely wrong. So Celicia, why don't you tell us a little bit why you reached out to me and said you wanted to do an episode about this? So, hello. I love shopping off-price and outlets. (laughs) The experience and this like thrill of the hunt is very, very interesting to me. The psychology behind it of why I buy stuff, why anybody buys stuff and Mm -hmm. what experience drives people to buy things. So the difference of shopping at a, you know, a TJ Maxx or Marshall's versus just a vintage store or like an army um, surplus store. Those are so different. It's just, yeah, very interesting to me and how much it's changed over the years. It's interesting to talk about the psychology of buying because I feel like we talk about people as being into certain kinds of shopping versus others. Like some people want vintage clothes and will love to go to a vintage boutique but can't handle the hunt of the thrift store or vice versa. You know, it's or like my husband loves to go to the bins, which to me is like too much. And if you aren't familiar with the bins are, it's the Goodwill. It's literally they roll out bins of stuff and you dig through it. And like, that's too much of a dig for me. Right. But by the pound. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's totally awesome. But it's like, it's a very intense experience. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's very competitive and you need to be fast. And Yeah, there's people that know what day stuff shows up and when they turn it and when they mark it down. It's a whole, that bins, I think, are, is another subculture. There's layers to it, like Goodwill. People know when they change the tags out or what day the different colors, uh, the prices change. Mm-hmm. It's um, true. All the way up to, you know, uh, factory outlets or like the big outlet malls. Mm-hmm. People that travel internationally to go to just even in Florida that go to Tampa specifically to go to the outlets, that whole lifestyle, I guess, or uh, subculture is, is even more interesting. It is. I, I mean, for me, I primarily grew up going outlet shopping. Uh, I grew up not too far from Reading, Pennsylvania, which at that time was like the world headquarters of, of outlets, it seemed. Yeah. I mean, it's it's totally different now, obviously. And outlets, and I use outlets in quotes because we know they're all kind of a fraud, are so widespread There's that sort of the nature of being an outlet has been diluted. But back then, you could go to an outlet and actually get extra product that the company had made, you know, and it was a hot deal and it was, or remember it would be like irregular, slightly irregular. We would, we would drive up to Schenectady where my grandmother lived from Philly, which is pretty long drive. And the highlight, unfortunately, besides, you know, seeing family, the champion factory store was like right off the exit. And yeah, there would be stuff with a hole at the seam or it was just, that was the, the highlight of, of going up there and getting like some new sweatsuit that had something maybe weird <laughs> on it. Um, and I like, those were cherished memories, let alone like cherished knitwear or, you know, sweatsuits uh-huh. that just, just wore to death. And those, that doesn't exist anymore. Maybe Pendleton Pendleton, I think has like a fact or a true factory seconds outlet. I think they do and it's uh it's somewhere it might be in washington i feel like i've passed it on the way to go to the river that's a portland thing (laughs) to do uh (laughs) but yeah i mean there you know for my family going to the outlets was it was like a special day you know it was a destination and it wasn't just like running an errand it was like a whole day we're gonna go out for lunch and i used to get really upset because one of the outlets we would go to was lee jeans and you know, my grandma wanted to buy me all these Lee jeans and Lee jeans are totally fine. But I, my middle name is Lee. And for some reason, you know, in like you're eight years old, it's just, yeah. Sticking point. You're, just you're like, I can, I cannot wear these jeans that are na- have my middle name. Like, this is just <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> I still laugh at myself. Like I, this was like a really strongly held conviction that I had. And so there would be a certain part of that day that would be really stressful and upsetting because it would basically be my grandma generously trying to buy me some Lee jeans. Yeah. <laughs> just the shame. You were just shame washed over you. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. Anyway, so you you have sort of a special family connection to Off Price. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So I grew up in a family retail business. Even when I was a little kid, my dad was still manufacturing and importing and designing footwear. My grandfather and my grandmother, when they came, got to the U.S., were in Florida. This is stuff I didn't know until I was a little bit older. Uh, but besides having like a shoe repair store, my grandmother was super savvy. They didn't speak in English when they got here that she would buy up, uh, seconds from shoe companies that there were still shoe companies, you know, in South Florida. 
my grandfather would do like whatever the silly minor repairs are, like fix a buckle. And they'd be at flea markets every weekend. Cool. Selling these, you know, like, I don't know, repurposed or just, you know, repaired to become first quality. And they did that for years and years and years, um, you know, into their later years. But at one point they had a couple repair shops, but then also sold, sold footwear in there. So my dad grew up, you know, in that, that mindset. So when my parents opened like a family shoe store, which doesn't really exist these days, they didn't have a, they couldn't get accounts with anybody. They just started, they, it wasn't a big store. The way to get product then, not so much now, is you go to jobbers or like wholesalers. So jobbers mm-hmm. a term that you probably don't hear very often, if, if at all. And a jobber is somebody that would buy up closeouts, overstock, sometimes even seconds. And then an independent business could go there and buy what they needed. You didn't have minimums. You didn't need to be pre-approved and authorized with, you know, all these credit terms and you could buy what you needed. Broken size runs, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And all these brands that you wouldn't have ever, would not have had access to. Mm -hmm. And then there was even smaller ones. I mean, even there would be companies that would just buy up other stores that were going out of business and they take all their inventory. And it was a way to, you know, close out your business. You'd barely break even probably on the inventory, if not lose money, but you were, you know, able to get rid of it. So growing up, that's, that's how my parents established their business. And even throughout, you know, 20 years later, we're still, my dad would still go if a store was going out of business, go, go through the inventory, uh, nothing wrong with it. It's just maybe people weren't going to that store anymore, that destination, and it could have still mm-hmm. been brand new product. Or even there was still some jobbers in Philadelphia, and you go up, they'd pull some stuff under the loading dock, and I'd go through, you know, stacks of shoes and the ones where the boxes weren't crushed and you know everything looked great. Yeah, they were first quality, and so I had that experience um, really young, and then shopping. So my parents were in the business, like nobody was going to buy anything at retail knowing how much things actually cost. So a lot of it was bartering, like in the neighborhood. <laughs> True. I was mean, I'm bartering with other stores, but um, <laughs> yeah. we would still, yeah, the outlets were, were a big deal back then, at least when they truly were, you know, leftovers, overstock and, and actually, you know, the same quality that you would find. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the golden era of outlets. Well, Sawgrass Mills in Florida is like the Mecca. So remember we would go there when we were kids, if we were visiting family and it's still a giant, massive outlet mall again in quotations, but then, then it really was. And there was actually like luxury stuff. Yeah. You could still find things that were, you know, first real same quality, first quality and something that you might not have seen somewhere else. And yeah, we could, you know, load up on whatever it was for the school year or some special thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I miss those times. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you go, you're like, wait, these look like the same pants, but they feel weird. <laughs> or yeah. there's no pockets. There's pants with no pockets at all. Mm-hmm, Strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not yeah. that I think I've been to an outlet and, I don't know, a dozen years, probably. There's a, there's this thrift store that we like to go to. So my family, as in my husband and my daughter and I are, we're thriftaholics. I mean, we would rather buy something from a thrift store than new. And that's not new. That's not like some Mm -hmm. 
eco-sustainable practice we've adopted, we all just somehow were born that way. So, because I guess we like a, we like a bargain also. Uh, there's this amazing yep. thrift store that we like to go to outside of Philly. It's like a 45-minute drive, and it's in a town called Limerick. And there's also an outlet mall there. And one day, my husband was like, let's just check it out. And I was like, ooh, I don't know. I outlets have gone downhill and I was like but let's let's give it a chance whatever it's winter we're bored we walked around and it was it was terrible I mean everything was if it was recognizable from that brand as as like a first quality item it was still basically full price it it wasn't cheap I'm always really cognizant of that like psychological game of tricking you into thinking you're getting a deal when you're not so there was a lot of stuff that was like marked up but then discounted and so you were Mm -hmm. like oh my god it's 50% off but it was really the same price as if we had gone to the mall or even like buy two get one free yeah yeah you only need one right right so there's a lot of that and we didn't buy anything we almost bought something at the adidas store because that one had some first quality stuff they have well i think like even nike adidas and probably some of the other bigger brands they have just regular stuff in there yeah like full price brand new regular goods so it's it's a it's a whole mix i think it's just about yeah. Where geography, like where do they put the stores where there's traffic? Cause there's a ton of traffic Yeah, where shopping malls are dead, but outlets are where it's at. Uh, yeah. Since shopping has reopened in the suburbs of Philly, uh, we've driven by that outlet mall. And I mean, every single parking space is full, like out to the edge. And then people are making up their own parking. It's <laughs> Whereas you go by the King of Prussia Mall, which, I mean, you know that mall. You would consider it to be... Grew up going there, absolutely. A nicer mall, right? Oh, it's one of the nicest... Na- I mean, now it's there's probably the highest end stuff. Yeah. Or at least the last time I went there 20 years ago. That parking lot was like, man, eh, like not very full. So uh, we passed a lot of malls on our way to this thrift store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so back to jobbers. Are, are they still around? Does that still exist? There are, but I, I think, you know, I was looking online to just find things. A lot of it ends up where you just, you're buying things by the pallet. So I think the demand for broken things and really small orders, one either, either isn't there or it's not profitable for them. Imagine the amount of people that are required to mm, like mm-hmm. sort and pack and pri- even price things. There are a lot of them left, but they call them like wholesale resellers. So you're either buying pallets by category. So it'd be like men's dress shirts, a mix of women's summer dresses, but it's a, it's a pallet or you're buying it, you know, in tonnage. So that's really very different, but, but that's even maybe it's Uh for people that have, I don't know, multiple doors or they, do all the flea markets, you know, you'll go to a flea market and everything's brand new there. And you wonder where did this all come from? So these, these much bigger wholesalers, I think they'll buy the leftovers from outlets mm-hmm. or from off price. Cause there's a lot of smaller off price. I think probably regional chains than, than we would even know about. Oh, for sure. I can, yeah, I can think of some even here. Or they're shipping that stuff to other countries. Yes. You know, yes. There's no lack of textiles in the world. Everybody has too much. Every country, mm-hmm. there's no place to send it. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know where that stuff, how long it sits and where it goes. 
because there's so much of it. Yeah, I don't know either. I have at a couple jobs and I haven't negotiated this or have been part of the larger conversation, but I have been in meetings where we've talked about trying to send some of our inventory to jobbers, like damaged inventory specifically. And I know mm-hmm. a lot of the larger retail chains tend to consolidate. So each store will have sort of a, you know, a pile of stuff that is too damaged to resell or you can't resell because like it's underwear mm-hmm. or something, you know, like you couldn't put it back out on the floor and it had been returned. They will generally consolidate all of these damaged out products back to their fulfillment center, their warehouse, whatever they call their company calls it. And then they will try to sell them off to jobbers. You know, that's like a better situation than having to destroy it. But to be clear, plenty of retailers also just straight up destroy this. There's all kinds of stories all over the place of like Eddie Bauer cutting up a whole bunch of $200 coats and sitting it out on the sidewalk. Whole other episode. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I know that jobbers are still functioning. I just don't have a lot of uh, clarity into how, and maybe someday I'll get to talk to someone about that. Well, even uh, there's a shop that I really like in LA. I guess I'm not going to name anything specifically, but she goes and it's different than the bins. Cause I think she goes to actual, like an actual wholesaler and she, you know, so mm-hmm. much, she can still find vintage teas and she finds other things to repurpose, but she'll post every once mm-hmm. in a while. Like I spent, you know, 16 hours digging, digging through stuff. <laughs> and it's maybe she gets a chance to, to do that activity before mm-hmm. it just gets bundled. You know, it looks like they look like, um, trash bundle. They're like compressed raw materials. Mm-hmm. Like at the rag house. Yeah. Yes. And then they, I don't wherever they go after that. I mean, it used to be, they used to go towards, uh, you know, industrial rags, Mm -hmm. uh, stuffing, I think stuffing for, I guess, mattresses or furniture insulation, insulation. Um, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other industrial purposes, maybe burn for fuel. I'm probably (laughs) possibly, I mean, that does happen. You know, I, in another episode, we talked about how there is a power plant in the city where H&M's headquarters are. Oh, yeah, and that. they, the the power plant relies on those burned clothes as a, as a pretty significant source of their fuel. Just, I wonder if it's cheaper than actual fuel. It might be. Be- because of how, yeah. how much it costs them to that's make. What I, I mean, that's disturbing, but you might be onto something there. Yes. That's yes. so disturbing. Yes. Okay. Well, so today we're going to talk about off price. And, you know, I, if you don't already know that term, now's probably a good time to explain that. So off price retailers, they provide high quality goods at cheap prices. So there are examples all around us. TJ Maxx, which is the biggest off price retailer in the world. Nordstrom Rack, Ross, which is the second biggest. Marshall's, Home Goods, Hot Look, that's online. Gosh, I mean, I could go on and on. There's so many. Even like Saks Off Fifth, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Gabriel Brothers. What did Neiman's last call? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're just all around us. Well, Home Goods, Marshall's, and TJ Maxx, it's all the same company. I think they might have other ones too. I think they do. Ross also owns some other stores too. Big Lots, there's another one. I mean, there are plenty of companies who are just doing this with mm-hmm. furniture or mattresses or building yep. supplies. I mean, there there's something for every segment of retail. Someone's doing off price there. So ostensibly these retailers buy manufacturer irregulars, which are, you know, like we've talked about, maybe one of the pockets is messed up. The wash is strange. It, you know, 
it, one leg is shorter than the other. Uh, they'll also buy seconds, which are the same kind of thing. Closeouts, that's when someone goes out of business, sells off all their inventory. Canceled orders, which we talk about a lot here. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah, it's a huge source. Overruns, that's when, and this has happened to me a lot as a buyer, where the factory makes way more units than we wanted to buy. We don't want to take them. And so, you know, now you know where that stuff goes. Or it's even like I've been in that situation where it's a it's a negotiation. It's like, oh, let us see if we can sell it to somebody. Mm -hmm. you know, but we need a discount and they need a discount. Right, right. But it's a way it's a way for everyone to still make, you know, a little bit of money. Right. I mean, and because as we talked about, like a lot of these clothes, for example, are made of a huge roll of fabric, like a truckload of fabric. And you don't want to waste it. So often the factory will just use all of it. So they'll just keep sewing until it's all gone with the hope mm -hmm. of selling it off to someone, which makes sense and at its core is a lot less wasteful. Also, sometimes these off-price places will sell uh, goods that were returned by other retailers. So we've talked before about how sometimes you might RTV return to vendor and order because it wasn't the right thing. There was a quality issue. What that retailer might think of as a quality issue might not be a big deal to say, Ross, they'll be like, we'll take it, you know? Or it's, oh, I don't really like the way it came out. Yeah, which happens all the time. Happens a lot. Some, yeah, yeah. It's not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, like maybe, I mean, this has happened to me as a buyer where I'm developing something and I pick the colors for the fabrics, you know, maybe I'm doing it all piecemeal. So I never see all of it together at one time. And then <laughs> the TOP sample, which is an actual sample of the goods that have already been made arrives at my desk. And I'm like, Oh, I don't know why I thought pink and green leggings were a good idea. You know? So once again, then those might be sold off to someone like TJ Maxx. And then also, you know, end of season closeout merchandise. This is sort of all the markdowns that were left at the end of the season that the retailer couldn't get rid of, those two have an opportunity to go be purchased somewhere else at one of these off-price retailers. But, I mean, so far, so far this is like a great story, right? Like we're saving all this stuff from the landfill. But mm -hmm. they also make their own stuff, which we're going to talk about later. We're going to get into that. So it's not all a happy story. So... Off-price is big business. It is huge. Roughly two-thirds of consumers who ever buy clothes do so at off-price retailers. And this statistic blew my mind. 75% of all clothing purchases in the United States are made at off-price outlets. It's mind-blowing. So I know, like, to hear that, it's mind-blowing. So no wonder all these other retailers are going out of business because they're all fighting to share that remaining 25%. And my next thing is, why haven't they all gone out of business already? Like, you can see now why suddenly brands are declaring bankruptcy like every week right now, because they were hanging on by a thread. They were all fighting for the small part of market share and overextending themselves. Think about how much off price has reaped from brands spending so much of their budgets on marketing only to then they go out of business themselves. But that brand positioning holds its own totally in an outlet or, you know, in an off price store when I don't know, do these do these stores do a whole lot of marketing? Maybe they do. And I just don't don't see it. The only of all of these off price stores that I've ever seen commercials for are TJ Maxx. And I remember when I was a kid, they had a song that was like, you get the max for the minimum at TJ Maxx. Do you remember that song? <laughs> Kind of. Yeah, sort of. I guess there's commercials because... Maxinista. Maxinista's that, that cult of 
of, of diehards. But they seem to be the only ones that do marketing, like outside of email marketing, right? Like I get email marketing from Nordstrom Rack almost every day, but like I have never seen a commercial or a billboard. There's definitely no print ads, maybe maybe in like the Sunday coupon section that, that you know, gets stuffed into the paper, but not in print, not anywhere else you would run run into it they keep their costs low and that's definitely something we'll get into also but i mean it's like they don't have to advertise and after doing a lot of digging into the history of this model and how it works from a financial regard this model of off price seems to endure no matter what it attracts shoppers of all ages and all incomes in all kinds of economies experts have been saying for a while that the apparel business has sort of hit a plateau you know and I mean, I'm sure you've sat in meetings like this too, Salisha, where we talk about how millennials only want to have experiences now. They don't want to buy things. Or if they do buy things, they want electronics. And I mean, this has been going on for at least the last 10 years. And it has been true that as an overall, the apparel... It's it's like an excuse in some ways of blame it all on the millennials yeah. that they want more for their dollar <laughs> or want a story and a connection. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the figures are on the, on the spending power of that generation, but everybody else is buying stuff too. So Yeah, but somehow still apparel has sort of plateaued and any tiny, just tiny amount of growth in the apparel industry seems to be, have been driven by off price, which of course that makes sense now that we know that 75% of the clothes being bought are being bought at off-price retailers. Some analysts believe that the growth in off-price has also, and this is a whole other story here, it's been driven by an ever-challenged and declining middle class, which I 100% believe. And we know that our economy has been a house of cards for a long time with a widening wealth gap. And off-price is there to serve you when you don't have a lot of money or you're afraid of what your future might be financially. Nordstrom mm -hmm. thinks of Nordstrom Rack as the engine of their entire business, kind of keeping things chugging along financially. Wow. So I thought we could kind of talk about what it's like to shop in an off-price store and we'll compare sort of Nordstrom Rack to Nordstrom because they're universal experiences for a lot of us. I think this is an interesting comparison because in 2019, Nordstrom stores generated about $500 in sales per square foot. And that's like decent, right? While Nordstrom Rack where stuff is significantly cheaper, right? They generated $552 per square foot. Wow. Yeah, the average selling price is so, so different. In total, Nordstrom Rack is about a third of the total Nordstrom Corporation sales. So, you know, Nordstrom Rack, Nordstrom, other projects, you know, they have like Trunk Club and things like that. So Nordstrom Rack is a third of those mm -hmm. sales. And that's a lot because we're talking about a much lower price point than a Nordstrom store. So now we're going to talk mm -hmm. about the differences in shopping of these two, because at its core, like <laughs> Nordstrom Rack has a very low overhead in comparison to Nordstrom, right? The, the experience, the ambient of walking into one versus the other couldn't be more, more have more of a contrast. Right. Like there's no one playing the piano at Nordstrom Rack. I was going to say, there's a sh you get a grocery cart because the <laughs> expectation is you're going to fill it. Right, right. When I was talking to Silesia before we started recording this and she brought up the shopping carts, I was like, oh my God, like, I never even thought of that. But you're right. All these off-price stores have a shopping cart, but like you wouldn't <laughs> imagine walking through a regular Nordstrom with a grocery cart. With a, I mean, you would be escorted to the door. <laughs> It'd be so loud because the floors are like marble or something anyway. 
<laughs> Where... mm-hmm. Yeah, and if there's there's a guy playing class or someone playing classical music on the I piano know. I versus know. Uh, drop ceilings, fluorescent tube lighting, grocery carts. Yeah, and and so the merchandising is very different. Like in a Nordstrom, you know, it's like there's departments and there's display and there's not a lot of product out on the floor. It's like maybe a size no. run. Things are folded. Things are laid out. There's mannequins. Things are grouped together in stories. Meanwhile, Nordstrom Rack, everything's hung. There's some signs hanging from the ceilings. The round racks have signs on them, right? <laughs> That's it. That's it, guys. I guess there's music. I just think I block it out. It's definitely not from a guy playing a piano. No. And it's by product type. It's just pants. Yeah, yeah. That, right? Is that right? And then yeah. dresses, I think. Yeah. Okay. So if you went into a Nordstrom and you were like, I'm going to look for a dress and you went to whichever department appeals to your age group, the dresses would not be all grouped together. Things would be tend to be grouped by brand or like concept, you know, trend concept. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be divided by size either. <laughs> like, So if you went to a Nordstrom rack, you'd be like, okay, there's the dresses section. I need a I need a medium. Okay, we need to go to the part of the rack where the mediums are hung, which is you know has a little plastic thing on the rail to tell you. And I'm gonna look mm-hmm. through all the mediums. You know, I might look at the smalls and the larges just to see if anything got mixed in. Yes, yeah, you're always <laughs> looking for somebody that puts something back in the wrong place. Totally, it's part of the thrill of the hunt. And you know, if I were at a regular Nordstrom and I wanted a dress and they didn't have it in a medium, I could ask a sales associate, and they would go look in the back or they'd call another store. But at Nordstrom Rack. Mm-hmm. there's no one around you don't find your size Just well keep going cashiers Cash- yeah, yeah cashier. imagine going up to a cashier at Nordstrom Rack and being like hey could you see if you have this in the back <laughs> they have numbers like or they have like lights yeah. I think that say like next <laughs> open open cashier like like the bank teller or the DMV <laughs> I mean ultimately the Nordstrom Rack or I mean TJ Maxx Ross whatever their merchandising direction if you will the way they put the product out on the floor is kind of like a goodwill but without the benefit of the color coding <laughs> <laughs> you have to you'll have to walk up and down to find all of the black items not they're not all grouped together by color right. the other thing there's so much inventory on one rack that in order like you have to be strategic in where you start because there might be someone coming up from the other mm-hmm, side mm-hmm. or the other side and you need enough room to sort of shuffle the hangers across so you get like a three inch view <laughs> um, but you also need to move at a certain clip, yeah no dilly you know, dallying the pressure the pressure is on from people around you absolutely i mean it is it's a mission right it's not like I mean, it is relaxing if that's what you're into, but it's not the same sort of laid back customer service focus experience you're going to have at Nordstrom. Like, okay, so let's talk about like, for example, the shoe department, right? And Nordstrom, the shoe department is huge, right? All kinds of tables. There's couches and like it's, it's meant for lounging. And you find a shoe you like before you even can ask someone generally, a, a sales associate will appear they will go to the back and find the things that you wanted to try on. They might bring some other styles that are similar. Mm-hmm. They're going to lace up the shoes for you to put them on. They might help you put them on, which I hate. Yeah. Uh, they're going to ask you <laughs> how you feel. They'll try to find you other things. Okay. So Nordstrom Rack. <laughs> the shoes are always like kind of in the back of the store, grouped by size. <laughs> and they're just on shelving. Yep. And it's like a free for all. There's shoes everywhere. Maybe they'll have something good in your size. Maybe not. You just sit on the floor to try them on. You know, you got to be careful. You're going to trip. People have left boxes and stuffing and whatnot behind. There's no display of shoes. It's just like 
what it is, you know, whatever's on the shelf is what you have an option to try on. And when you go more premium, I think sacks off fit, there might just be one shoe. Ooh. <laughs> so you have to ask someone to get you the other shoe. That might be when, when regular sacks does their like crazy end of season sales, uh-huh. but they'll just be a left or just a right. Oh, that's so weird. I think it's just so you don't <laughs> steal them personally. Yes, absolutely. And then like, okay, what about the fitting room experience? So at Nordstrom, you're going to go in there. Someone's going to keep coming in to check on you, to bring you other sizes. They're probably going to bring you some other layering and styling pieces to sort of try to upsell you. Mm-hmm. Mirrors. Yes, nice mirrors. Place to sit. Soothing lighting. I didn't know that, that I'm... TJ Maxx and those kinds of stores. Does the TJ Maxx have fitting rooms? Yeah, but I mean, they're like the bare minimum. It's a shower. Curtain. No, they have a door. <laughs> okay, I guess it could be worse. Although I've been to places that have like a shower curtain. But there's probably a max on what you can bring into the fitting room. Yeah, but it's it's a lot. Okay. It might be like 10 things or something. And someone's going to count it out and give you a tag. And then they're going to give you your clothes back. And you're going to walk and find a room. Whereas at Nordstrom, they would take the stuff to the room and hang it up for you. Probably sort of artfully mm-hmm. in there so you can see everything. Nah, that's not what's going to happen. I hear at Nordstrom Rack and then you're going to bring it all back and they're going to count you back out before you can leave. And there's no way. And if, if someone has had a slightly different experience, please send me an email about this, but there's no way they're going to go look for another size for you. I mean, how would they even do that? It would take them so long. No, cause they're manning, they're manning, uh, you know, um, a stable of fitting mm-hmm. rooms. a lot of fitting rooms for sure. And then they have to deal with everything you don't want to buy because the pile I'm, I've been a culprit of this is like trying everything and want nothing. Mm-hmm, me too. And you just end up leaving, uh, you know, that pile with them. And they have to rehang it, you know, divide it all up. Someone else has to come and run it back out to the floor and put it away. And there's no backstop. I think none of those stores have any backstop because they. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. They have just what they can sell, right? They want to make, I guess, yeah, they're making $552 a square foot. Yeah, for stuff that is at most half the price of a Nordstrom and probably more like 25% the cost. So they're Mm -hmm. selling a lot of stuff. It's a volume game. So also the customer service is going to be a lot different as we've been touching on. Like at at the Nordstrom, probably the same person is going to help you from helping you in the fitting room to ringing you up and wrapping up your purchases. And it'll be really a pleasant, soothing experience. Whereas at Nordstrom Rack, you're going to go get in line. Uh, you're going to go up to the register that the number is lit up. It's your turn. If you're going to get wrong up. It's going to get stuffed into a plastic bag and you're going to leave. Like that's it. Right. And I don't, well, I don't know if this is Nordstrom Rack, but all the other ones that I've had the pleasure of, of being in, there's so much pr- random product as you're in that line. It's like when you go to, I don't know, Best Buy oh, yes. or, or Office Depot. Sephora. Yeah. Lip balms and electronics, food, mm-hmm. drinks. Mm-hmm. Socks, gloves, whatever they have. Anything that they can fit there that you could grab with your hands while you're waiting in line to check out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I fall for that kind of stuff. I'm bored in line and I'm like, you know, I, I could use some more socks. I need this phone case. Yeah, it's always stuff like that where I'm like, well, I couldn't find my headphones. I'll just get these weird ones. So, <laughs> And it's smart of them, right? They're maximizing every square foot of that store to make money. So that's why they're making so much more money than Nordstrom. So the, you can buy all kinds of stuff at these stores. It's not just clothes. There's home goods always in the back. They all have some semblance of home. Nordstrom Rack, not as much, I guess, but everybody else does. Beauty, 
there are whole blogs that are devoted to the beauty products you can get at just TJ Maxx. And Nordstrom Rack, I've noticed, has been sort of shifting more and more of their sales floor footprint into beauty. It makes sense. Into beauty? Yeah. Yeah. When I think of any of these stores, the first thing I think of is luggage. (laughs) They all... Oh, yeah. When you walk in, I feel feel like that's more Ross, maybe. You walk in, the whole left side of the front department of the store's luggage. So is TJ Maxx usually, and I've seen this at Marshall's. Okay. This is where people go to buy luggage. I get it. It's expensive. But the stuff that's really in, which you and I were, when we were working on this episode, like planning, we're like, we were cracking up about the food. We were cracking up about the food. I was so surprised when I hadn't been in one in a long time and I walked in and thought I was in a grocery store because there was... (laughs) Such a, but right when you walk in, like the displays, there was so much pasta. When I think of the food at these places, I think of infused vinegars and oils in like elaborate bottles, <laughs> like something you might find in a weird corporate gift basket. Or in a hotel that you would never use. Some Something at a yeah. uh, hotel breakfast buffet, sort of, something like that. I mean, I'm going to tell you, growing up in rural Pennsylvania, when I did, a lot of the more middle-class moms would have a display of these infused vinegars and oils in their kitchen. We did not have that. We were not middle-class enough for it. But that's what I think of. Like, I think of people buying these things and not even using them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just dec- decorate or above the kitchen cabinets, decorative, totally, totally. decorative vinegars and decorative oils. So I had to know more about the food. After you and I talked about it, I was like, I got to look into this. So when you look at the food section in these stores, the shelves are always super disorganized. There's no division by category. It looks like a rummage sale, you know, mm-hmm. lots of onesies, twosies. It's not like when you go to the grocery store and things are in even rows by type, by brand, you know, by spe- like specific item. This is just a little assortment. And so I found out that this is actually how the stuff is bought, which blew my mind. It's so smart. So the buyers want to run out of inventory, or at least they want it to look like there's not much inventory there for you. And so they mm. buy these mixed cases of different items from the supplier. So they might buy, you know, 10,000 cases from them, but each case is like two weird vinegars and then one bacon salt. And then, you know, for you to feel like, it, oh, that it really is on sale. It's the last one. Yeah, it's to create this sense of FOMO because they want the customer to buy it now or think they're going to miss it forever, even though this inventory will probably be restocked again tomorrow morning. They just break out another yeah, mixed case. Yeah. And I would like to see a merchandising plan. Me too. And, you know, I mean, coming from a more traditional buying background, this blew my mind because a nightmare as a buyer is a mixed case generally. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, 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 no. We need all the same colorway in this case pack, just different sizes. Like, how are we going to track inventory or allocate or send it out to stores or list it online? So this is crazy to me, but also just so fascinating. So the other thing is you're not going to see ordinary condiments and spices there like and they're not going to just have some chili powder or like a regular old mustard and ketchup no it'll be like brand <laughs> branded of something you've never heard of mm-hmm. and, and has to feel extraordinary exotic i mean a lot of these things say gourmet on them somewhere which i think is such a funny word <laughs> possibly, possibly because i ate so many of those budget gourmet frozen dinners growing up and they're like one dollar <laughs> <laughs> the budget was true the gourmet was not <laughs> but so yeah when you see this exotic bacon salt or olive oil with pomegranates suspended in it or something you're gonna be blown away and you're gonna want to buy it right away and so 
some of these novelty items, uh, Sleech actually sent me an article that was like the best foods to buy at TJ Maxx. And I thought they were, it was really funny. So, cause then I was like, yeah, I, I have seen all of this there. So novelty flavored popcorn. I mean, I've seen some really bizarre popcorn flavors there both in like bags boxes in those huge drums tins yeah tins yeah yeah uh this one designer cake mixes <laughs> <laughs> like and i was like what the hell is a designer cake mix but like it might be a, an exclusive line of martha stewart cake mixes which as a long time lifelong martha stewart fan who owns all of her cookbooks, like nothing could be more on Martha's Stewart than a cake mix. And designer cake mix, yeah. Yeah, I don't even go for her cake recipes because they're too hard. <laughs> I wonder if it has her face on it or if it's just the just I, the logo. I don't know. I'm I'm going to be on the lookout for this. I need I need to find one. <laughs> and as Salisha touched on the unusual pasta shapes, and one of the articles I read about the food at at TJ Maxx said specifically that the company searches out these unusual pasta shapes. Like that's what they want. I actually want to buy some of it now, but when I was, I was just awestruck at the amount, like the amount of designer or novelty pasta there. Um, I guess they have sauces too, maybe. I can't remember, but definitely just so much pasta. (laughs) The next gift everybody gets from me is exotic foods from TJ Maxx. Great. I'm I'm just obsessed. I'm obsessed with this. So also there'll be, novelty spices like bacon salt or Mm -hmm. curry powder salt it's always things that are supposed to are like salt that go on meat i swear to god it's like (laughs) it's not for like any other kind of cooking um they also and i have seen this and been really freaked out a lot of like fancy canned tuna Hmm. uh i know weird and there's always biscotti (laughs) that nobody wants to eat that nobody wants because biscotti is kind of Scotty kind of sucks, right? It's mm-hmm. hard. Uh, and there's always like a lot of other gourmet snacks like that. Once again, very reminiscent of what you get in these weird corporate gift baskets. Um, mm-hmm. When you're a buyer, you get a lot of these every year. And it's just cheeses that don't need to be refrigerated. And nothing needs to be refrigerated. Yeah, things that don't need it, to be refrigerated. It, it, that's the part that's weird to me. Because then I'm like, but why? <laughs> so <laughs> I was under this assumption, and maybe you were too, Salisha, that this food product is overstock inventory from somewhere like Williams-Sonoma or one of those companies that makes gift baskets or Macy's. Mm-hmm. But actually, none of it is. It's manufactured specifically for the off-price store, which makes sense because food... It makes sense. I've never thought about it, but yeah. Yeah, like you don't want overstock old food. You don't want season-end closeout food. I mean, that's that would be dangerous, right? <laughs> I would love to hear from someone who buys this food because I have so many questions. I have never seen anyone buy it, but I know that it's a big business for them. And so I would just love to hear. I think I've bought dog. I think I've gotten dog treats. Ah, they do have a lot of those. dog, Dog toy. I kind of remember dog treats that were the same brand though, that, that I would have normally bought from, you know, whatever pet supply store. Mm -hmm. I have seen that there. Yeah. I've seen some, in the animal section, like nationally recognizable brands of pet treats. But the food is so fascinating to me. And I guess also I'm, you know, I have a lot of dietary restrictions. I don't even look at the pasta. I can't eat it anyway. So it's probably just not even getting into my brain as something I should check out. But now I can't wait to go to one of these stores and really dig into it. So I don't know if you've heard, but the whole world is falling apart right now. What? I know. Crazy, right? And like businesses, I mean, I'm going to be really honest. 
the news for retailers as a whole gets worse every single week. Uh, there was definitely a time where I thought maybe the worst was over and soon people would be able to start getting jobs again, but I think we're a long way off from that. So this is a great time for finding hot off-price inventory because all the retailers and brands have excess inventory or they're straight up going out of business. Retail sales fell for a record 16.4% from March to April, according to the Census Bureau. And I couldn't find any data for after that, but I'm sure it's worse. It might have been slightly better and now worse again. Mm -hmm. No surprise, clothing stores bore the brunt of it with a 78.8% decline. I mean, that is bad. Knowing that they were already struggling. struggling, they were all, yeah, they were all competing for this 25% of business that is left for them. It's really, really bad. So, of course, this means the industry is dealing with a lot of unsold merchandise that may, I don't know, I guess for lack of a better term, be past its expiration date mm-hmm. in terms of seasonality and trend. I mean, think like all of a sudden everybody had to close in March. So that would have been spring clothes, summer clothes. Well, now, in a traditional retail model, it's August. This would be time for fall clothes, right? All that summer stuff would be long fall, gone. Yeah, I was going to say even in March, they there would still there would probably still be markdown, you know, winter product. Yeah, I mean, what a rough time to close. That's like a very transitional time in the business. So we're looking at all kinds of stuff people are sitting on. And yes, as we've talked about before, people have been canceling, like retailers have been canceling, but. They couldn't cancel out of all of it. And what about all the stuff they already had? Mm-hmm. What about the stuff they have coming from fall? I mean, it's 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 a mess. According to a survey of more than 2,000 retailers in late March by uh, online wholesale platform New Order, which I've used a ton as a buyer, it's basically a place where you go place the orders for, for different brands. It's almost like one destination where maybe 100 brands you buy yeah. already are and you can just enter the orders. of retailers hope to cancel at least some orders they'd placed for products that had yet to arrive. And that's scary because those brands that were on new order selling the product probably already had it ready to go. Or it was on the way. Yeah. On the way. Yeah. So even before we start talking about all the extra inventory that retailers have, brands have a lot that they were planning to wholesale off to these retailers. And since then, you know, reports have emerged of retailers from department stores to fast fashion giants cutting spring and summer orders, leaving brands and manufacturers holding tons of excess inventory they've already paid to produce and market. As I've mentioned before, when we've talked about the pay up movement, anything that got canceled for April, May or June by March was probably already on its way, was on a boat. Yeah. I mean, so a lot of stuff already exists. These cancellations are not... uh, not a problem. I guess this is the easiest way to say it. Like there's, there's, it's not an easy fix on any level. So right now brands and retailers are in need of cash because they're not selling anything. And that might mean taking deep markdowns, which I'm starting to see now, like just now in the past couple of weeks, I think retailers are like, shit, everything went yep. from 25% off to 50 to now 70. I'm sure we're going to see even more of that. So they're already struggling, right? But then the vendors with canceled orders, as we've said, they're probably produced all of that. Yeah, because you know, if you think they're producing 90 days, anywhere from 90 to 30 days out plus plus shipping. So Yeah, I mean, like so, 45, 60 days, you know, on so, the water. Yeah, I would say definitely anything from April, May, June already existed. Mm-hmm. July, maybe the 
the fabric and other materials were bought, but may not have been cut yet. But that's still that's still a problem because these factories paid their suppliers for this stuff. Yeah, and those deliveries are almost the hardest every year because you have end of the year closures for holidays, Chinese New Year, also China being hit the earliest, and all the shutdowns that they were, you know, enduring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So whether they sped up to hurry up and finish stuff or uh, can't even really imagine the domino effect that's going to can still continue to take place. I know. I know. It's it's pretty rough. So a lot of these vendors are reaching out to these off price people like, hey, what 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 do you want? What do you want to take from us? I mean, these off price retailers have more to choose from than they've ever had. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot of brands that you don't usually see at these kinds of places making an appearance soon. And I know that for a fact, I'm not going to name any names, but some of my different friends who work or own their own brands or work in deep within these brands have talked about how they are selling this stuff off right now. It's like all they can do. Good time to be a consumer. I guess, except for how none of us have jobs and the poor. Yeah. Yeah. So some analysts are calling this the biggest apparel clearance in history, which so, so depressing. So, this seems like a great business from a sustainability perspective, right? Like there's going to be less unworn product going to landfill or being burned and, you know, all the stuff that's already made isn't going to go in the trash. But more and more, at least before COVID, off-price retailers have been making their own product. And, you know, why is that? Well, I mean, there's just so many. demands. Yeah, there's so many of these stores. So many stores are opening year after year. All, all of these chains have been opening stores like gangbusters. So their inventory needs are greater than overstock opportunities to fill it. Now, of course, now we're in a different area where that's not true, at least temporarily, because there's so much new product flooding the market for them to take. The example that I like to use of this is remember when all of Nordstrom Rack was stuffed from Nordstrom stores, and now it's just a couple racks, maybe, mm-hmm. that have a special sign saying from our stores, and then the rest of the store is just stuffed with other stuff. What I can add to that is the size of the order. So if we talk about uh, dollars per square foot and how sparse a Nordstrom is, mm-hmm. think about how small their orders are. And then a Nordstrom rack, that's packed. Right. Like how, how would that be possible if it wasn't all being made, you know, this, or this, a significant portion being made for them? Right. And when then when you look at something like TJ Maxx, we're talking about how TJ Maxx also owns Marshalls and Home Goods. You know, there's not enough th- throw pillows being marked down by retailers every season to fill those stores. <laughs> There's so many throw pillows. There's so many. That's like where the money is there, I guess. So many throw pillows. So the product that's made just for these off-price stores is cheap. I mean, from both a retail perspective, as in what you as a customer are paying for, but also from a cost perspective. So, you know, we've already talked about this ad nauseum. Cheap stuff means lower quality. And we also know that low price product usually means dicey conditions for the people making it. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the episode, but just something to be mindful of. And so Celicia brought up something that I really tried to find the answer to, and I just couldn't, which was, what about all the off-price stuff that doesn't sell? Where does it go? Where? Yeah. I could, I could not. I dug and dug and dug. I could not find anything anywhere. This is something I'm going to continue to investigate. Some articles, which I did not think to be very reliable, said that it went to thrift stores. I don't believe that. I mean, maybe a little bit. I mean, 
think about how much stuff gets donated, even if it's just, we talk Goodwill, Salvation Army, or, you know, mm-hmm. hospital, church, church sort of thrift stores, about how much stuff gets donated that is just not sellable. That's yeah. what has to go somewhere, let alone brand new merchandise that doesn't sell. I always right. thought about this. Is there, are there like monster TJ Maxx outlets like hidden around the country? Kind of like the bins. Do you think TJ Maxx secretly has their own bins? <laughs> I mean, that would be incredible. One thing that I did read that felt right to me is that what they do first is just continue to mark it down until it's almost free. Okay. So someone will take it, which does make sense because I've seen some crazy markdown stuff. I mean, I definitely remember buying a pair of shoes from Marshalls back in like 2000 that were a dollar fifty. It's pretty good. So there's no way that makes sense. Yeah, I know. And so it, it kind of goes back to this idea of like it's sometimes when you're a retailer, it's better to just practically give the stuff away because moving it around to somewhere else is going to cost money. It's it really expensive. Yeah. 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 So I do believe that they're doing a lot of that. Do I believe that we should be going out and loading up on this stuff just because it's a dollar fifty? No. You know, like I'm pretty sure those dollar fifty shoes I wore like one time. You know, there was a reason they have a dollar fifty. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so I'm going to continue to dig into that, but it does it is kind of mysterious and it's disturbing for me knowing how much stuff is in those stores and how much is arriving all the time. I read something um maybe a year or two ago about how local economies that I don't know what country. I want to say like somewhere in Africa, I forget what country, but there's all these skills skilled craftsmen or tradesmen uh, men or women, that their business was, you know, going through all this inventory that was getting almost dumped on them and then reimagining it or repairing and then having their own, you know, mom and pop independent businesses. Not huge, but enough to like sustain people. The amount of product that it's it's just drowned anyone out from being able to have a business with that in mind where there's just so much of it, whether it's so cheap because, you know, it's getting bought in bulk, shipped somewhere else. They're buying it at a discount that sort of decimated these smaller, um, I don't know what the right word is, types of businesses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If I can find that, I will for you to share. I have read that some countries, a lot of them in Africa have, stopped the import of any of this excess stuff from the United States because it was suppressing their own industries for textiles and clothing and stuff. So it makes, it makes sense. I mean, I mean, if you don't know where our stuff goes after we don't have it anymore, like you shouldn't blame yourself or feel stupid or whatever. Like I just started to learn this a few years ago and I was shocked and I would read articles about how basically in, in uh, Africa, like late nineties, early aughts sportswear was trending that's what they were getting, yeah. Because that's it was just like coming in nonstop. You, it was weird. You would see someone walking down the street in a, like a Space Jam T-shirt. <laughs> because I remember specifically what I'd read is that Space Jam. There was so much merch made for that. I mean, it was like a huge business. If I recall correctly, the merchandise from Space Jam made infinitely more money than the movie and let me tell you that movie made a lot of money so there was at a certain point one there was less interest in space jam yet Mm -hmm. there was all this new merchandise so that all got shipped off 
But then people were like, oh, why am I, why do I still have this Space Jam t-shirt? This is embarrassing. And so that would get donated to the Goodwill or whatever. On top of it, yeah. Yeah, and so even more Space Jam clothing is going to Africa. And reading that, it just blew my mind. Like to think about all the stuff that I bought ironically to wear just once or twice or I thought Uh was gave someone as a gift because it was funny. I think about all of like in the era of ironic graphic tees of like 2002 to 2010 all those ironic graphic tees people were buying yeah it'd be an interesting research paper to follow find to find that and then one day that space jam tee ends up back back here selling for 300 bucks yeah yeah some little tiny uh thrift store like you know in soho or you know in la brea or something totally and when will all of the everybody loves an irish girl and getting lucky in kentucky t-shirts that i folded uh, in the early aughts uh, make their way back into vintage yep. stores I don't know. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they 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 didn't survive like they've already uh disintegrated imagine Imagine seeing your grandchild walk in in a vintage Everybody Loves a Jewish Girl t-shirt. Yeah, no. (laughs) Where did you get that? Yeah, exactly. Burn it. Get it out of here. Hey guys, it's me again. The next episode will be the other half of this conversation with Celicia. We'll take a walk down memory lane to the origin of off-price retailers, and we'll talk about her challenges developing product for off-price. You won't want to miss it. I wanted to say, I looked into this after we recorded, that Space Jam sold over $6 billion in merchandise, from t-shirts to special McDonald's fry boxes to toys of all types and quality. Meanwhile, the movie has been almost universally panned by critics and most viewers and actually ridiculed because the merchandise eclipsed the actual film. Like the merchandise made infinitely more money than the movie. A lot of critics at the time dismissed it as an extended commercial for Nike and Michael Jordan. I would encourage all of you to listen to the Space Jam episode of How Did This Get Made? I was laughing the whole time. I also had to take my brother to see this movie, so I have really specific memories of it. As I mentioned in my convo with Celicia, for a long time, our excess clothing, meaning a combination of our own cast-offs and donations and unsold merchandise from retailers, was sent overseas, primarily to Africa. In fact, in 2014 alone, a handful of East African countries imported more than $300 million worth of secondhand clothing from the United States and other wealthy countries. Basically, United States was the number one source and the number two source was the UK. We talk a lot on Clothes Horse about where our clothes come from, but I know we need to spend just as much time talking about where they go after we're done with them. And I'm starting to work on that. If you are an expert in that area, I would love to hear from you. So please drop me an email. Here's what I've been able to learn so far. In some ways, importing all of our unwanted stuff creates jobs. You know, for sorting, cleaning, and selling these items. And there's a whole economy based on it. But to be honest... Over time, it prevented these countries from developing their own textile and clothing industries. After all, these used clothes were selling at rock bottom prices. A pair of jeans might go for $1.50. So why buy anything from local makers 
when it's sure to be more expensive. In fact, studies have shown that the cost of a used garment is 5 to 10% of a brand new garment made in Kenya. I mean, how can you even compete with that, right? If we think that fast fashion has destroyed our ability to buy nice quality clothing because we can't say no to a deal, imagine if fast fashion was only 5 to 10% the cost of a well-made garment. I mean, that's crazy. They could never win, right? No one can win in, with that kind of pricing. The flood of imported used clothing began in the 1980s when simultaneously government subsidies for local manufacturing were cut off and limits on imports were lifted. It's a recipe for disaster. In the 90s, so after this, these changes had happened, there was still a textile business going on in Kenya. In fact, Kenya had about 110 large-scale garment manufacturers. By 2006, that number dropped to 15. And 10 years later, Kenya had only 15 textile mills. And Uganda had about 30 garment and footwear producers nationwide. Neither country had enough textile manufacturing infrastructure to support their population. So cutting off this flow of used clothing was going to be very problematic for these countries. And yet at the same time, they need to shut down that flow if they were ever going to be able to build their own industry. So it's a, it's a complicated situation. Countries including Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Burundi, and Rwanda have been pushing to end this flood of imported used clothing, but the U.S. and other Western countries have been pushing back. And you know why? The world used clothing trade is estimated at $3.7 billion per year. It's not a little bit of change. It's a lot of money. Massive private companies that you have never heard of are packaging up donated clothing and footwear from all of the world, but a lot coming from us in the UK, and then selling off these clothes in other countries across the world, including Africa, Asia, and South America. Even nonprofits like the Salvation Army aren't giving away secondhand clothes for free. When supporters drop off their unwanted castoffs, those organizations often deliver donated clothing to the developing world and sell them to traders. So there's sort of like a middleman there, right? They, in turn, sell the items in their local markets. And money exchanges hands multiple times over after you donate that bag of stuff you Marie Kondoed from your house. The local market sellers oppose any legislation that would cut off their supply of clothing. And who can blame them? It's a good way to make a middle-class living. That said, sellers have also noticed a decline in the quality of the clothing with the rise of fast fashion. And clothes are arriving a lot more distressed, shrunken, damaged. I mean, because they're just, they're not made to last. We already know that, right? While the previously mentioned companies have greatly restricted the flow of used clothing, Ghana has not. But the reality is that far more clothing is arriving than could ever be needed by its population. And so about 40% of the used clothing is rotting in a landfill. About 50 metric tons are added each day. And you're probably not surprised to hear this, but a substantial portion of these clothes are synthetic. So the breaking down of these plastics is releasing toxic chemicals that are leaching into the water supply and soil. And there's nothing else to do with these clothes because local seamstresses and resellers have also said that most of the clothes that arrive are not worth saving because the quality is so bad. And why? 
because they're cheap, fast fashion. A lot of H&M, among other brands, finds its way there. Once again, it goes back to this idea of why are we buying things that are intended to be disposable? I say intended and disposable, both in quotation marks, because how can something that isn't ever going to decompose be disposable, right? And why would we buy things that even can't be worn secondhand, that just sit and rot? And I also read an article that said there were some primary culprits here. I mean, there's all kinds of fast fashion heading over on boats to these countries and ending up in landfills. But the stuff that they seem to see most frequently going directly to the landfill were ironic and souvenir t-shirts. Ding, ding, ding. As we discussed earlier, tons of Space Jam. But other stuff too. I mean, think of the early aughts and even now, t-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. It's, it's a quick money grab. It's high margin. There's fundraiser t-shirts. A lot of people making t-shirts just for family reunions and weddings and one day fun runs. It's gross. There were a lot of one-off garments for weddings and festivals. So also like that new dress you have to buy every time you go to a wedding or that crochet bra top that you intended to wear only one time at Coachella. And there were also a lot of Halloween costumes. I mean, there's more there, but these are some big culprits and they all speak to this idea of single use clothing. So they had no use to anyone, not even the original owner after one use. It's gross, it's so gross. Just to reiterate, your wedding doesn't need a special tea. You don't need to buy a fundraiser tea, just donate money instead. We did a mini-sode a couple weeks ago about cause marketing, which is all about selling specially made things to raise money. Just donate your money. You don't need a thing. Your feminist tea isn't doing much for the world either. And make your Halloween costume out of things you already have or reusable items from the thrift store. Honestly, it's so much more fun that way. Don't, for the love of God, buy a new dress for every wedding. I mean... (laughs) That's gross too. <laughs> and so on. You don't need a new outfit to go out every weekend. You don't need multiple brunch dresses. Wear it all again. Even that Space Jam tee. Seriously, I want to see some Space Jam tees on the streets and on Instagram, guys. <laughs> it's back in style. Don't worry, you won't look silly. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse questions concerns a staunch defense of space jam drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com and once again if you know more about how the big thrift companies operate i would love to hear from you because this has been difficult information to track down you can also find us on instagram at clotheshorsepodcast and i gotta tell you our content is off the chain Being jobless has given me a lot of opportunity to hone my graphic design skills. So come check it out. Please don't forget to check out my second podcast, which I co-host with Kim. It's about trends and taste. It's called The Department. There's a link in the show notes. And this is a lot more fun than Close Horse. I mean, I'm having fun, but, you know, we we get some serious heavy shit sometimes in here. If you like what you're hearing, leave a rating and maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. And tell a friend, I love seeing shares on Instagram. Seriously, it's the highlight of my day every day when you guys share our posts or recommend the podcast. Yay. 
Special thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and extra fine audio mixing. I watched him do the final mix last week, and it was so rad. Okay, bye!